By the 1920s, the National Forest System realized that recreation was a major, major use, and we had to give it some attention. The fact that we're all in this room today talking about the history of public lands, it's important that we keep this at the forefront of our mind as we step out onto the landscape and use these areas. It's also a cool opportunity for introducing new uses, new activities. As long as those new uses and activities don't like, you don't have to hurt the dirt, you typically can get those into an operator plan. Hey now, Mountain Crew, this episode of the Mountain Works podcast was recorded live at the Mountain Works Assembly, which was part of the 2022 Mountain Works Conference in Bend, Oregon. About 450 ski area employees from throughout the Northwest and even beyond were in attendance. And for the first time ever at the Mountain Works Assembly, the entire ski area roster, top to bottom, was in the same room, having conversations that touch everybody and include everybody. The three themes of the day were a little bit of history lessons, looking back at the legacy of Northwest ski areas, the legacy that is currently being inherited by a whole new generation of leaders in the ski industry. Another theme was really what we look like now. What's the current makeup of the workforce in the ski industry? And the third theme was Okay, if we're inheriting this legacy, what are we going to do with it? It's not ours. It's just our turn. And when we look at it that way, that means we have to have big conversations about global weirding, career choices, the economy, training. These were some really big picture topics with a whole slew of experts on the stage. We really do think you're going to enjoy these next few episodes of the Mountain Works podcast, created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. Now, Mountain Crew, what we have for you today is another recording from the Mountain Works Assembly, which was that big gathering of ski area staff members from throughout the Northwest in early 2022. The room had about 450 people in it, which consisted of all levels of the ski area roster. One thing we all, of course, saw coming into the pandemic, through the pandemic, out of the pandemic was the spike in public land usership. A lot of people got outside, and it wasn't just the ski areas. And as either a land manager or a recreation provider on these public spaces, we saw that a lot of people didn't really know the history of how this whole system of recreation came to be. And if you think back to our other conversations about the ski industry currently in a generational transition of leadership. Well, we wanted to be sure that these up and coming leaders could take a beat to look back on how public lands came to be a thing, 
how ski areas came to be a thing within that public land system. And beyond that, all of the nuance of the bureaucracy that that involves. Forest plans, operating plans, special use permits, master development plans, those sorts of things. And to do that, we had three very cool people up on the stage. Chris Hager from an organization called Backcountry Hunters and Anglers gave us the rundown of the history of public lands in the United States. After Chris, Shawnee Hinman from the U.S. Forest Service stood up and told us how ski areas became to happen and become part of the public land system. Then Shawnee came over to the couch, chatted with me for a little bit, and we invited up our friend Kent Sharp from the SE Group. Kent knows all the details about the operating plans and all the specific parts of that bureaucracy and all those systems in place to make ski areas happen within public lands. And because these were live presentations, don't forget to hit those show notes so you can pull up those slide decks and follow along. Now it's time to jump in the time machine and figure out how we got to here. We can't have this public lands stewardship conversation without talking about the OG stewards of the land, right? So where we are in Bend, um, our native ancestral lands, uh, Warm Springs tribes, Wasco, Northern Paiute, definite migratory seasonal routes coming through here. And I, I just can't stand up here and talk about stewardship without recognizing previous stewards and then our role that's coming into that. It's really important to us, I think. And here's a weird fit. Um, and honestly been a little bit nervous about it because this is not a ski organization uh, that's going to come up. But uh, it's really important, I think, in the history aspect of things to just refresh ourselves on how public lands became to be a thing. Like, how is this even a possible thing? How is this North American model like the precedent for the world? And it, it's such a cool, cool thing. Uh, and I want to talk about it. And, you know, there is overlay with the ski industry a little bit. Think about earlier when I was saying the government affairs advocacy type stuff. Um, so we advocate, we you know write letters, we support with legislative things. The Great American Outdoors Act was one of those, providing lots of funding uh, generationally. Like this has not happened in so long, where there's now some more dedicated streams, uh, streams of revenue for helping the Forest Service, helping Department of Interior, all that stuff, getting back up to speed, repairing things. And it has implications in your forests that your ski areas are on. So that's cool. And that group, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, that's going to come up here in, in just a moment, well, when I say his name, they did the same thing. They were advocating for the whole thing too, because it affects them. And I bet, uh, I bet, I, I know there's people in this room who hunt and fish. Who put on a backpack? Who could RP, REI and buy the thing and go do the stuff? There is that overlay. And that's what that group does. And that's what we do. And I didn't have to make up my own public lands history presentation because they already have one. Uh, and so that sounds just great to me. <laughs> His name is Chris Hager. He's with Backcountry Hunters and Aglers. And I don't, I don't see him. Is Chris here? Come on up. When I see Chris, oh, there we go. I was blinded by the light. Chris, let's get some music for Chris. <laughs> Thank you, Jordan. Um, really excited to be here today uh, to talk to you guys about the importance of, uh, and history of public lands uh, in the U.S. If I sound a little muffled, apologize. My seasonal allergies are really setting in. Um, 
But like it was said, my name is Chris Hager. I work for Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, I oversee Oregon and Washington. I live up in Washington as a Northwest coordinator. Um, but what does that really entail for me? I, I do a lot of state policy work, just like Jordan was saying, um, on national and state policy issues around uh, public lands. Uh, but I also do a lot of hunting and fishing um, events. Uh, what, you know, a, a lot of different hats. Um, but the biggest thing is, I'm, just like Jordan was saying, I want you guys are probably wondering why a hunting and fishing organization is talking to you at a ski area conference. Um, and I'm going to do a little bit of shameless plug uh, for my organization real quick and give you a little bit of background, hopefully answer that question for you. Uh, so BHA, our mission is to ensure North America's outdoor heritage of hunting and fishing in a natural setting through education and work on behalf of wild public lands uh, and waters. We work off of three main pillars, access and opportunity, uh, public land and water, and fair chase. I won't be talking about fair chase, but I'll definitely be talking about access and opportunity today, and then definitely uh, public land. Here in the United States, we have a unique, really, really unique opportunity, and that's created by two principles, the North American model of wildlife conservation and the public trust uh, doctrine. The North American model of wildlife conservation intersects hunting and fishing to conserve and restore our game species inherently uh, habitat um, throughout the throughout the country. Our public trust doctrine ensures that our government is protecting these natural resources. So essentially, we have millions and millions of acres of public land at our fingertips. And it doesn't matter if you hike, hunt, fish, bike, camp, ski or snowboard. Everybody has access to these lands whenever they want to as long as you're in the United States. And that essentially makes us all public landowners, which is pretty amazing and super unique to the United States. Before I get into to the public land jump, I do want to acknowledge, just like Jordan had in the beginning, the indigenous lands that we are meeting on today. That's Owasco, or Owasco Paiute, and uh, Warm Springs tribes. As all public landowners, we have to understand that we are all responsible for how these public lands are transferred down to next generations. And I'm going to go into that in a little bit more uh, at the end of my presentation. But so just keep that in mind in the back of your, uh, the back of your head. So with all this opportunity and access at our fingertips, how did it come to be? And it didn't, wasn't by accident. And it definitely didn't used to be like that. Back in the you know, middle 1800s, early 1800s, a lot of leaders and a lot of people started to see our natural resources dwindling. We saw the eradication of bison across the Great Plains, elk, uh, bighorn sheep, and other iconic species started getting wiped off the face of the earth. And this was because of increased fur trades, uh, increased wild game trade as well. We also saw this massive land push, right? Settlers are moving across the West. But with that, there weren't a lot of regulations. We saw a lot of overgrazing, a lot of um, uh, wrong use of, of water allocation. Um, and some of these leaders, uh, early leaders uh, within the U.S. started to recognize that. They started to see our natural resources um, vanishing, and they wanted to conserve that. One of the biggest, actually, I want to point out this picture real quick and go back to the eradication of bison. If you can look... Um, or look close enough, each one of those little white dots is, is a bison skull. They used to collect bones off the plains, um, pulverize it down, and, and, and create um, fertilizer for the ag industry. 
but that just kind of gives you to the, to the scale of hunting um, and deregulation uh, of our wildlife was at the time. That's pretty incredible. So if anybody recognizes this man, he is probably one of the, if not the greatest, but definitely one of our godfathers of conservation here in the U.S. Theodore Roosevelt was one of the first major leaders that recognized um, our natural resources dwindling. And that was through him being a sportsman, which means a hunter and angler. It was through him being uh, a woodsman, uh, a soldier. Uh, he was a rough rider. And so he'd be going out all on these trips and, and recognize the fact that our wildlife was, uh, was disappearing. Um, our landscapes were get, being overrun and overtaken. Um, and so he did something about that. In his tenure as president, he has done more than any other presidency um, in the last or over 100 years. And I'm just going to read it off uh, off this off the slide. But he he conserved in his presidency 230 million acres of American lands and waters, established 150 national forests, 51 federal bird reserves, four national game preserves, five national parks, and 18 national monuments, which is absolutely incredible, and set the precedent for what conservation looked like here in the U.S. His presidency really laid the, uh, the groundwork for the organizations that we see today, the U.S. Forest Service, that a lot of these ski areas that you guys either work at or are part of, lease land. Uh, the National Park System was reinforced by Teddy Roosevelt and now contributes millions of acres of public land uh, to U.S. citizens. One note about the U.S. Forest Service, uh, the first chief of staff uh, was Gifford Pinchot. Uh, he now, if you guys know, across the river, we have the, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, uh, one of the groundbreakers for a National Forest Service. But the Antiquities Act is something that uh, Teddy Roosevelt put in place in 1906 um, that would strengthen the National Park Service by putting a precedent on conserving wild places and wild spaces uh, by the federal government. And so what Teddy did is, is basically gave us this gift a hundred and some odd years later that we're able to recreate no matter what you do, as long as you have a passion or enthusiasm for the outdoors. Like I was saying before, you don't have to ski or snowboard. All you have to do is go hike and you're accessing these public lands, which is pretty incredible. What do we have today? We have 568 national wildlife refuges, 155 national forests, 16.4 million acres of uh, landlocked land in the, U in the United States. Oregon has 31 million acres of federally public land. Washington has 12.6 million acres of federally managed lands. And Idaho has 32.6 million acres of federally managed lands. And so we have now come a long way. The one thing I do want to point out is 155 national forests. Teddy Roosevelt uh, designated 150 in his presidency. And so we've only had five additional national forests added on in over 100 years. But like I mentioned in the beginning of this presentation, the amount of access and opportunity that we have available to us is incredible and unique, completely unique uh, than anywhere else in the world. So what does this mean? This means that this is not only a gift, but we need to keep pushing this forward as easily as, as it was given to us. It can be taken away. And so the fact that we're all in this room today talking about the history of public lands, whether it's a hunting organization, a ski area, 
um, whitewater, biking, hiking. It's important that we keep this at the forefront of our mind as we step out uh, onto the landscape and use these areas because we need to continue this for our next generations. We need to continue to uh, create this community. We need to continue to um, expand inclusivity and diversity within the landscape. And just to remind everybody, you guys are all public landowners. You guys all have a stake in this. Every single time you step out or go ski, you guys are stewards of these lands um, and a voice for these lands. The last thing I want to leave you with is, is a, uh, a quick quote from Lantani, uh, CEO and president of, of BHA. This public land legacy that was gifted to us didn't happen by accident and it won't be carried forward by accident either. It's by people in this room who are going to carry it forward. I true, truly wholeheartedly believe that. And it's up to us to do that, just like I was saying in the previous slide. The one thing I wanna leave with you before I, before I step down from the stage is, the next time you go out on public lands, understand the history, remind yourself what's at stake, but then also bring a friend, not like your buddy that you always go skiing with, but somebody new. Introduce them to the outdoors, introduce them to something that they're not um, used to and bring them maybe out of their comfort zone. Because by building that community, by being a part of that conversation, we can keep on conserving these wild and public spaces. Thank you, that's my time. go another layer deep now in this space right so let's talk about the forest service stuff we have someone here from the forest service let's let's just keep going down this rabbit hole for a little bit shawnee hinman is the u.s forest service recreational special uses program manager for the region out of the portland office he's gonna come up thanks shawnee <laughs> Well, first, I'd like to start off with saying thanks for having me. Thanks for everybody for coming. And I just also want to say that I intend to give you this kind of overview of some Forest Service history that's not meant to be comprehensive. OK, um, I if you know me, you know, I love diving deep on like life cycle of ferns and, you know, aquatic organisms and stuff. But I really actually thrive in anecdotes and uh, kind of uh, factoids. So. This presentation is meant to be more of the anecdotal factoid level. So if you find any of the information incorrect, come in uh, and let me know because uh, I do enjoy good learning. So uh, who am I anyway? Shawnee Hinman. I'm the Forest Services Rec Special Uses Program Manager for the Pacific Northwest region, right? What does that mean? Well, I sit in Portland now, but throughout my career, I've moved all over the West. So I grew up in Northeast Washington State um, uh, next to the Colville National Forest, which is up, you know, middle of nowhere. But I learned to ski and snowboard at 49 degrees north. Any 49 degrees north people? It's my home mountain. You know, we went to, we went up there when we were kids and had a great time. And it was a formative experience. I think a lot of us share that experience where it, I always say it's the first time I get independence from my parents, you know, where you're like third grade and you're like, I'm going with my friends. I'll see you at the end of the day. And we would go and just cruise all over the mountain and do all kinds of things. So that was the beginning. But since then, I've moved all over the West to really cool places. Um, uh, I've lived in Nevada. I've lived in uh, Boise, Idaho. I've lived in Parkdale, Mount Hood, Parkdale. I've lived in Salt Lake City, Durango, and now Portland. And in that journey, I've been managing uh, recreation and special uses for the Forest Service that entire time. 
And like Chris said, I mean, the public land piece is huge. All those places that I've moved to, well, one, because they paid me and I went and had a job, but two is because it's some of the coolest places in the country, right? And why is that? It's because of the public land. Uh, we all know the access to the mountains and the recreational opportunities make these places great. And it's what really drives a lot of our love for, the, for these very areas. And so being on the, on the national forest side um, has been really, really interesting, but it's a, uh, it's a humbling experience working for the government and interfacing with a group like this of, of experts in your field. So I, I, I was kind of dovetailed behind Chris and before uh, Kent to give you like this legacy of, of the national forest ski area. And it's going to be brief. As I said, uh, it's kind of hard to take a hundred plus years of history and put it in 10 minutes, but we're going to try. And I think at the end of the day, uh, I hope we just kind of have this good, warm feeling when we're done that makes us realize that this is really cool and we should talk about it and it'll help us look forward. So um, I, I do hope for some more interaction, though, from the group is is it's like mid morning, probably almost break time. So I have some snicker bars in my pockets and I'm hoping that we can get some interaction so uh, we can see who's been studying Pacific Northwest ski area history. And so I would like to do some of that, but it's not just skiing or snowboarding, right? Re winter recreation on the national forest is, it's everything from, I have snowshoeing, sledding, Nordic skiing. We have fat biking, snowmobiling, snow angeling, fort building, ice fishing, right? It's pretty robust. And I think a lot of us in this room are probably some of those people who really like cold weather. I am always stoked for winter. And uh, it's funny when I talk to family in Florida or whatever, they're going, what are you going to do all winter? And I go, are you kidding me? It's awesome. Like, I love it up here. And so I think that that's just one of those things that helps form the type of people we are is having these wide open spaces, these mountains, and then blanket them in snow and you got a whole new world. It's pretty cool. But um, the first the first question should be easy since we just had some precursors. But anybody remember what year the national or the Forest Service was uh, established? 1905. Who was that? Oh, yeah, Snicker Bar. And and then how many acres are in Forest Service jurisdiction nationally? Did he say that? Anybody know? 16. Nationally, it's 193 million. So quite a bit, right? And that's back to this point, like. There's this huge North American legacy of public land that I think we have all been the benefit or have, we have all benefited from it because it's just this, if you travel across the world, very rarely will you see a system as robust as ours. So brief history. And uh, if anybody knows me, I, I have a hard time being brief because I like to talk. Um, but the Forest Service was founded on the idea of conservation and using the land for the greatest good for the greatest number of people in the long run, right? Um, in, in those days, conservation is generally about uh, timber, forage, minerals, and water. And I have a, a helpful mnemonic to help everyone remember what the Forest Service's multiple uses. It's the five W's. So remember, wood, water, wildlife, and then wange and recreation. <laughs> which helps us to remember the multiple use mandate because, and really it's true, right? Recreation is now one of the biggest things that we do. I mean, whether, you know, we're trying to own that now. Currently we're not up to speed with the amount of business we're trying to really do, but recreation is huge. We know it's like one of the main drivers for why people move to places like Bend or, you know, like, again, why are all these cool ski resorts where they are? Well, partly is because is the mountains were there and the national forest was there. So we need to own that. 
Um, but you know, back in 1907 from the, from the old school guides, uh, pleasure seeking was identified as one of the main things we want to do. And so pleasure seeking recreation, I mean, it's awesome. So, uh, by the 1920s, the national forest system realized that recreation was a major, uh, major use and we had to give it some attention. So, I mean, you know, back in those days, recreation was mostly local and seasonal, which is still uh, greatly the case. But there was an advent. Let's see. Is there no laser pointer? Okay. <laughs> comes with a jacket. Um, you know, the advent of the of the automobile obviously changed the landscape. Being able to move freely about and have you know not just do a short day trip uh, really caused uh, recreation to start booming. Um, so as access became easier. They, we realized that, or a lot of people realized that, oh, I can go play in the mountains in winter too. You know, a lot of times winter was too gnarly, but if you can go out and back, stay at home, it's pretty groovy. Um, and so people who had connections with folks that were from like Norway and whatnot, they started playing around with skiing. And, um, you know, a lot of times back in those days, they would just clear an area, build a big jump and go at it, right? It reminds you of probably what we used to do in the backyard too. It's like pretty much an age old pastime, building a jump, hit it with your friends, get some hot chocolate. Um, and so Howelson Hill and Steamboat Springs started in uh, around 1915. So uh, some factoids, factoids from 1915, about 4.4 billion people in the world at that time. The 1 millionth Ford automobile had been built. So, right, we're starting to expand that. Um, and so you can see we're at about 8 billion people now. So about half the population as we are now. So pretty wild to think in, in, in about 100 years, we've doubled the world's population. And I'm sure there's billions of cars out there. Um, next quiz question. Who had the first chairlift in the U.S.? Uh, you want a snicker bar? I can't see over there. Oh, I see a hand. Safety first, um, wear your goggles, okay? Sun Valley, so that was established. And I think there's been toes and other things, but I think what it is was Sun Valley had the first chairlift, right? Um, and that was on, on National Forest. So during, uh, so, so later after, after 1915, we know there was a Great Depression. And of course, a lot of things were stagnant during that time. And so uh, coming out of the Great Depression, there were some cool programs. And so um, during uh, the, the 30s, people were out and about looking at ways to kind of boost the economy. And that's when they found Sun Valley and were like, hey, we should you know, focus on this area and, and build whatever ski lifts and, and have some fun and get people to, to recreate and spend money. Uh, of course, the Works Project Administration uh, in conjunction with CCC helped build Timberline Lodge. And then Timberline uh, built the Magic Mile, which at the time was the longest chairlift in the world and uh, second only to use it for people transport. So uh, that was pretty cool, right? Everyone here been to Timberline Lodge? Has has no one has no one been, anyone that's not been to Timberline Lodge? Go. It's an hour and a half away. Get up there. It's amazing, right? And that was built. It's a foundational. It's one of the the crown jewels of the National Forest System, right? Really cool history there. It's it's worth a trip. Bottom line, and the food's good too. And so, uh, basically, the the after the Great Depression, we had I think things were kind of like moving along a little better, but the. Uh, the ski areas in the national forest started starting showing up. So over 60 areas were developed in the twenties and thirties and about half of those on national forest. Um, you can see the list up here. It's summit, it's ski bowl, Cooper spur, Timberline, Sun Valley, Snoqualmie on and on. 
Uh, keep an eye on the 1938 at Alta. I'm going to touch on Alta a little bit, even though it's not a Pacific Northwest ski area. But um, uh, again, pop quiz, you can look, but what was the first ski area in the Pacific Northwest? Summit. Summit and Cooper Spur are on my list as, as, as the choice, but does anybody know for sure? Anybody got proof? I was trying to find proof. I was doing some peer-reviewed stuff this morning, and I couldn't find anything that distinguished. I saw both Summit and Cooper Spur at 1927, so a long time ago. Um, we mentioned Timberline uh, earlier, which also uh, is is one of those skiers. Really weird. Drive to the top and ski down kind of thing. And uh, But that that's also has the most vertical in the vertical lift served in, in the region. Pretty cool. So during that time, uh, like I said, Alta was on the list. And that was another really cool part of the Forest Service involvement in winter recreation was we all know to be in the mountains during the winter, you got to be kind of rad, right? You got to have skills, you got to have gear. And so also, we probably should have some science around what's going on with snowpack. And so avalanche science and mitigation and the science behind it and really the, the program kind of started becoming a little bit more real. And of course, people had throughout the years done this, but Alta and, and, and in that area, they, they started getting a little bit more dialed in. And uh, they had a few folks cozy, uh, you know, started looking for ski areas. We had people, uh, you know, looking at old mining claims, Forest Service hired people to be snow rangers and do avalanche mitigation. Uh, the cozy guy became the Forest Soup, uh, hired some folks from the 10th Mountain Division, and uh, they became a force in what is now basically modern avalanche uh, or snow safety. And, and I think that's really cool. And, and if you've ever had the chance to shoot a howitzer, um, those things are from like World War II, but it's one of the m most fun things you can do in the morning uh, to kind of wake you up. Um, anybody shot a howitzer? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Actually, it's loud and smelly, but you get to ski good lines afterwards and I think it's worth it. Uh, so like I said, World War II, right? We had like, the world was doing a lot of things. Recreation probably wasn't on the forefront, but what came out of it was uh, the 10th Mountain Division, Camp Hale in Colorado. They started learning to ski. Um, and uh, after the war, things kind of settled and, and kind of continued to be a little bit more pros prosperous. And so uh, they were looking for ways to stabilize the economy and, and create new things. And so this guy, Wilfred Slim Davis, uh, 10th Mountain Division member, began working for the Forest Service and surveying the land for areas that would be good for skiing in the West. Can you imagine the Forest Service is the one driving new ski areas, right? Pretty weird. But I think that that's a good part of our history is we, we saw this demand for winter recreation and we saw it was not going anywhere. And so we said, we should probably go look. And I think that that, that really helped to, uh, you know, get the boom of ski areas on national forest system land. So from the forties, fifties, uh, sixties, a bunch of more ski areas came up, uh, Anthony Lakes, Pebble Creek, Mount Baker, uh, Soldier Mountain, White Pass, Mount Bachelor, to name a few. And so uh, that, that, that period of time saw some pretty good growth and some pretty cool areas. Um, new pop quiz, it's easy one. World record snowfall in the season. Pretty easy, right? Is it 1140 inches of snow? Yeah. Have we gotten close to that since then? So Slim and them, they were working in the West. We had, uh, they were doing the rec site inventory. So, so this other opportunity was going about 10 years later and uh, 
they got this guy, Paul, and Paul was out and doing more of a comprehensive site inventory, which includes ski development. And they, they found over 50 areas that were potentially uh, good for skiing. And then, and then we had some winter Olympics, which further popularized, popularized the winter rec scene. So again, we had this kind of driving force to perhaps uh, have another boon for the ski area. And so that's what I'm going to call a full throttle. In the 60s and 70s, we had just a bunch of ski areas, 100 plus. So 100 plus in the U.S. opened and uh, basically a substantial amount of those were from that rec site inventory. And the fall, uh, and the, the ones on the screen are the ones that came up during that time in the Pacific Northwest. And a bunch of cool mountains, you know, Crystal, Mount Ashland, Mission Ridge, 49 degrees north, uh, 1972. So uh, that was a really important period of time for the ski industry, of course, to kind of come full speed ahead using the forest services. Uh, site inventory is a good foundation. Um, new pop quiz. Uh, who has the longest chairlift in Washington? We do. Who's we do? 49. 49 degrees north. And uh, uh, Crystal Mountains, Gondola, I can't tell again. The, the internet will give you different things. The Gondola is pretty long too, but one of the longest ski areas in the country, I think, is at 49 degrees north. And if you ever ridden the double chair before it was a detached quad, you'd remember freezing. And then you would get off the lift and you could barely move and you had to kind of wake up and then you'd go skiing. Um, kind of like coming out of hibernation, basically. And uh, so the, the detached quad, I, I rode it this winter, which is awesome, but it was kind of changed the land. I missed the old freezing toes thing. And I feel like today's youth are not going to have the same, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They're not going to be as hardy. So um, you should probably just slow it down. So <laughs> after all this crazy development and, you know, side inventories and we're going all over the place, things kind of settled, right? I mean, as we know, there can't be a million ski areas. We did a bunch of inventories, put them in probably some of the best locations because, you know, you have to have access, got to have roads, got to have, uh, you know, utilities and infrastructure to support them. And so following that great, you know, full throttle session, things kind of, you know, there were there was some development, but, you know, things were kind of tapering off and settling in. And, and we've kind of shifted towards filling in the existing ski areas, you know, finishing that master development plan, getting things dialed in. And of course, uh, that included a shift uh, towards four season use which we're all you know, going through right now to try to really up, up the total package of opportunities that you, you supply at your, at your areas. So a lot of history, right? I mean, it goes back to 1915 ski jumps. I bet you there were ski jumps before that. I'm just guessing if I know my buddies and I have slippery things, we're jumping off or whatever. And I think a lot of us probably did that too, but uh, say we'll call it over a hundred years of skiing on national forest, which is a long time, but we're moving into the new modern era, which is four seasons. And I think a lot of us are working towards that. You had the ski area recreation opportunity enhancement act or Soria, which kind of sounds like a disease, um, which was a huge, by the way, the shred act, which has come out to help us with ski area fee retention. Thank you for that acronym. Soria sounds like you're like got something wrong with your foot or something. And shred act is exactly what we're looking for, but that's a new thing. It's not passed yet, but I appreciate the acronyms. Um, currently over 120 ski areas on national forest system lands serving over like 60% of the, the capacity for downhill skiing. And, you know, of course we know about the economic drivers, uh, you know, 3 billion to the gross domestic product, huge, right? We're, it's a huge industry and it's, it's probably going to just continue because we, we just see this demand for year round uh, use, you know, whether it's mountain biking or scenic hikes, chairlift rides, 
you know, of course that, but then of course skiing as well. And so it's still an integral part for people to connect with their public land. And I, I'm still found, you know, holding on to the truth that bringing kids skiing and letting them go ski around the woods with their friends is probably one of the most important things for them. I mean, right. I, I was doing it and I think you could say it had an effect on me here. I am, you know, 30 years later helping to manage ski areas on national forest. So pretty, pretty important for me. So looking ahead, I think I don't, I don't want to get too deep. Like I said, I'm at the factoid level right now, but we face a lot of uncertainty in the mountains with water. So looking ahead, I mean, we, we were in a session yesterday about water and sustainability. I think we're talking about the right things there. Uh, we have a growing risk of wildfire impacts, right? I don't know if you noticed, but these are fire pants, uh, Nomex. So if, if you notice, a lot of us do, uh, are in firefighting because guess what? It's a pretty stable uh, career to be in. Uh, so we're, we're trying to work through that. And I think a lot of these areas didn't historically burn, right? But I think we're seeing that we're getting a little bit closer and closer. We saw some at Sierra and other areas where uh, wildfire and, and mitigation will be a big part of our partnership moving forward, I think. Um, the recreation demand is unprecedented. We are just, people love us, love us. And that's because it's rad. I mean, why not? I mean, just keep being rad and they'll keep coming. But we, we obviously need to figure out the systems approach and a lot of our legacy infrastructure, the roads and the parking lots and the stuff that was built years and years and years ago, uh, before NEPA or, you know, historic preservation act or all these other things. And now we're trying to get them fixed back up. And, but now we have to go through those processes. So it's a lot harder and more expensive. So I think, uh, we, we should, we're, we're going to be working through that for a while, but I think the future is bright. People like this out skiing powder, uh, with their family. It's probably one of the coolest things you can do in the world. Um, and so, Jordan, I think I'm done. So thank you for allowing me to give you that overview. Sourcing, sourcing the mystery. What else you got in your picnic basket down there? <laughs> hey, sit down. Dude, so much history. Uh, so, so many snicker bars. So many snicker bars, so many cool things. Yeah. So you've been on a lot of forests. Is there a cool project? Like, is there a project you've done that just like stands out? You're like, that was cool. You know, I think uh, every project's unique. Uh, I'd have to say Little Cottonwood Canyon. Anybody, you know, skied Little Cottonwood Canyon? It's all right. Not, not many people, huh? You should get out there. Um, working on avalanche mitigation in that canyon is probably some of the coolest things I've worked on where it's very complicated. You got wilderness, you got state highway, you got ski areas. And you're trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do here? And of course, if anybody follows the news, Little Cottonwood Canyon is uh, working on a solution. Uh, but you got explosives, you got military weapons, Gazex, uh, you know, Obelx, Daisy Bells. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so figuring out how to authorize that, uh, figuring out where to put it, how to not, you know, uh, you know try not to impact wildlife. Um, it's really complicated. So yeah. I think those are some of the projects I really enjoy because you get to work with the snow science, the snow nerds, you get to work with the engineers, you get to work with the forest service and the, bi the biologists. So it's a pretty diverse project. And then of course, it's all mostly because of recreation access that it's totally. Uh, so it's pretty cool stuff. So everybody saw this during COVID. I have my own little, little boat. That's not great, but oh man, I had a refuge to go just sit on a lake. <laughs> um, Everybody went outside. Everybody. Yes. Uh, and you guys saw your ski areas, but talk to me a little bit about what that growth is, you know, usage on the forest in the Northwest. What's that look like in the last couple of years? It, it's getting old to say unprecedented, but what we've seen 
is that recreation is, I, I think we all know, right? It's social media, it's the internet, it's having such so many tools in our pocket to get out and about so easily, you know, you know knowing where to go, having information, uh, not being afraid because you have spot devices and you got GPS and you can, you know, get to it. But what we're seeing is people are going out more than we've ever seen to developed areas like ski areas, uh, dispersed areas like the general, just forest side of the road camping, uh, you know, boating, everything else. Uh, it's been great. Um, but back to our legacy infrastructure piece, most of our campgrounds and it was built fifties hmm. and sixties and seventies and it's aging. And so what we're, what we're really trying to figure out is how to get that back up to speed. And that's the great America outdoors act. A lot of that was put in place to try to figure out how to get our legacy infrastructure back to, to stand to not to the new standards and, and be able to hold that kind of capacity. And I think I'm sure the ski areas are facing similar challenges with aging infrastructure. Yeah. Oh man, I can talk about this stuff for a long time, but we gotta, we're gonna have a break here. Not right now, but in a minute and we're gonna, we're gonna go deep. Let's just go down the rabbit hole. Kent Sharp is the president of the SE group. That firm specializes in mountain resort planning, as well as forest service approval processes. Kent's been in this business for over 30 years. He began as a Forest Service Special Uses Permit Administrator, a job that you've also had. So we're going to chat about all things forest planning, operating plans, master plan development. Kent, come on up. Throw a pillow around if that's in the way. Hey, can you be here? Yeah. That was great. People don't even know it. SE Group touches so many of the ski areas uh, in in all the planning. So man, thanks for being here. Uh, I feel really fortunate to have the knowledge base here, both on the couch. This is, uh, this is cool. Can the start at the, the highest level? What's a forest plan? Well, so if we kind of build on what Shawnee did, which was really a great presentation, love that. And I don't have great graphics here. I've got a really awesome image of a forest service special use permit. I thought that, um, so forest planning, Think of it as zoning comprehensive plan, like communities do comprehensive plans for which areas of a community is going to be commercial or residential. Forest Service um, has a mandate that each forest has to have a comprehensive plan as well. So that's a forest plan. And so in that, there's what we call a management prescription areas where they've allocated on a nice map and you know shaded areas of uh, wildlife habitat set aside, uh, motorized recreation, non-motorized recreation, ski area prescriptions. And so when we've got a particular project, uh, the forest will go to that and say, well, is this project consistent? That's kind of the key word with the forest plan. And if your project is consistent with the forest plan, then it's probably permissible. Um, so we looked at the forest plan at kind of the highest level of guidance. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that forest plans are definitely amendable, changeable. We do that all the time. Um, as, as forests plans age, uh, typically about every 20 years, a national forest is meant to revise their forest plan. Um, most forests are on really, really different schedules. We see a lot of forest plans out there. They're still like 1980s, 1990s, and those are getting pretty dusty. Some forests have new um, forest plans as well. If you're on a forest that's going through a forest plan revision process, the key takeaway here is you need to be involved. The, the ski area species permittee needs to be involved heavily in that process to make sure that the allocation of the land that you're operating on or maybe that you'd like to expand into is maintained as being appropriate for lift served alpine recreation. Um, so kind of that's where we start with the forest plans and that's that's sort of what they do. 
There's one overlay, particularly here in the Pacific Northwest, which is the Northwest Forest Plan. And that's a broad overlay. We see those typically for wildlife um, issues. Um, up here is the spotted owl, which is why that was brought into place. Um, I'm from down in Colorado. We've got an overlay for the Canadian lynx, same, same deal. So that's kind of the, the framework we work within for starting the planning process. There's another podcast called Timber Wars that goes into the Northwest Forest Plan kind of development um, that, I mean, taught me so much. Um, just sidebar there. How many people do you think are aware of their SUP, have read their special use permit? Like in the room, you know, many people are aware of it, I think, but probably not one of the resort. And, and maybe it's because only that person has to, like it doesn't really trickle down all the way down. But what are these special use permits? What are the primary elements of them? Like what's going on there? Yeah, that's a good question. So principally, the special use permits are kind of boilerplate. They are, if you haven't seen one, they're probably on the order of 20 pages long or something. There's not a whole lot of things that you get to change or that the mountain resort has envoy to say, oh, we want to write this differently. As you might imagine, the federal government's got a department for everything. And the Office of Management and Budget is the folks that build that boilerplate. And there's really only a couple of things in those, those special use permits that we get to change. And so the thing that I would point out is, number one, is the duration of the special use permit is 40 years. And I'm going to kind of plug into what Shawnee says. Why is it 40 years? There's no special use permit that the Forest Service issues that's anywhere near that long. The next longest permit is an operator guide permit. If you get a really good one, it's going to be 10 years. And so back in the day when, when uh, Shawnee was showing us the history there, a lot of the scariest came to the Forest Service. They said, look, we are not going to build this infrastructure at this level of CapEx, uh, you know, millions, hundreds of thousands, certainly in those days, unless we can get a longer special use permit, we're not going to commit without that kind of commitment. So in 1986, um, there was a act, the Skier Special Use Permit Act, cleverly named, um, that said, hey, we've got this new permit format that they can be 40 years now. And so ski areas could either uh, feel comfortable leveraging uh, those investments or would make those investments. So in the permit, back to the kind of the boilerplate of that, Page one, it states the acreage that the permit covers. Amazingly enough, we find that those numbers are usually inaccurate. And so if you're going through a process for a new forest plant, uh, or new special use permit, you want to definitely double check that that acreage number is correct. Now, one of the things we see a ton is as we bring those older permits forward, the mapping that was done, and I used to do these when I worked for the Forest Service back in the 80s, we were working on USGS quad sheets with literally Sharpie markers, <laughs> and we were drawing circles and we we're trying to figure out how many acres that was. Well, now we've got digital technology and we can run an accurate acreage calc. And when we see uh, permits get updated, we always find those acreage numbers are totally different. <laughs> uh, it might be off by even like several hundred acres. So that's one thing to keep in mind is look at the permit, look at the acreage and look at the map. The map is the most important piece to make sure the map that goes into a new permit accurately depicts all of your infrastructure, all of your ski terrain. And we see those oftentimes as we move from old permits to new permits being wrong. Um, hmm. The last piece, I'm going to give a quick plug for our friends at NSAA. Um, Geraldine Link down there has done an amazing job working with the Forest Service around how the water um, clauses are stated in those permits. And so for a long time, there was a clause in some of the older permits that said that the holder would sign their water rights over to the federal government. If you accepted this permit, you had to actually bequeath your water rights to the federal government. NSA challenged that, took it on at the Washington level and got that fixed. And the reason I bring this up is I was just reviewing a permit 
literally about three months ago and it still had the old water clause in there. Mm-hmm. And it still mm-hmm. said, we will, we will submit our water rights to the federal government. That's now been stripped out of there. So if you're going through a permit update process, those are kind of the three things that the acreage, the map and, and the water clause piece. Well, Other than that, you don't, you don't get to change the, the verbiage. I'd just like to add on to that, Jordan. Do it. Would I be allowed to do that? Do it. Do oh, it. Well, Kent mentioned uh, the mapping and, and all that. I think one of this is back to my factoid level of information. You know, this is not a lawyer's review of what's going on, but there are some pretty cool things that uh, with digital technology, of course, we're able to look at. But some of the other things to be aware of, and, and I think, again, you might just never think of it, but um, the ski areas are old. They've been around a while. Well, in the meantime, there's been some other activity likely around your area, whether it's wilderness designation or land exchanges or purchases or sales. And during that time, they do surveys and do uh, a lot of times they'll do a dependent resurvey of sections and townships and things will actually change. You know, like, of course, the land itself is the same, but the way the maps laid out. And so if your legal description reads certain township section range, you might want to verify that that still is the case because your resort, the physical resort is in the same place, but the maps changed. And so uh, we found some of that with some land exchanges. They resurveyed. Mm. It skewed where the county line was. It's So you might be operating in a different county. It's like, it's pretty funny how that can impact. And then one other thing that's really interesting and not very well known about a ski area boundary and boundaries are meant to be adaptable, changeable. It's, it's a permanent boundary. It's not a legal boundary, but uh, one thing that was passed uh, many years ago uh, was that the area in the ski area permit that are identified are withdrawn from mineral consideration. And so people aren't mining in your ski area. Um, and, and of course, there's a lot of stacked history there and your lawyers will need a way, of course. But um, another fun thing that your map or your ski area boundary is actually important to someone in your land management in a record office to know what that file is. And so uh, just be aware, there's also some good uh, protection that they provided to the ski area term per- permit mm-hmm. holders to uh, withdraw minerals. Well, that's an interesting note. It makes you think of those land designations. We've set apart something that says we... This is a resource for us. It has an economic and a cultural component, a primary component. And it's more important than timber. It's more important than minerals. It's more important than the other uses we do in other parts of the forest. This is the fun part. Uh, it's super cool. Let's, let's wrap a little bit more. So the people in this room, I think this is important because how often you miss the opportunities. I hear every year of the FOMO, like, oh, I wanted to go to this other session, but I had to go to this, get my LOT certificate or whatever. I think it's part of this too, of like, when are you going to hear this conversation? Uh, so that's cool. Matt, do we have this uh, a storyboard? We made a storyboard. Sean and he talked, we talked about making this video, but we didn't come around to it. But here's a storyboard uh, of something you might interact with in your ski area. It's also an app in the session in Hova if you want to look at it. But just give you a second there. It's silly. Uh, anybody have any skajoring happy your ski area? Just come up and I should be able to do this. This is public land, right? I wanted to go to Hoodoo uh, with a horse and Shawnee and do the whole bit, but we couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but you know what you do get? Uh, I should be able to uphill on this route. I should be able to park here. I should be able to do this thing um, and not understanding the nuance of actually what is going on within this, this, this whole system. And probably there's one two people at your ski area that actually know the guts of this. And are they going to find that person? Does that guess that's doing this? They're, no, they're running into someone else. And so I think this is a cool opportunity that we can educate everybody on this. And now there's more than two people at your ski area that can talk about this a little bit. So 
Let's talk about operating plans. What is, is it about it that we can say we can do these things, we can't do these things, why the force allows us to do these things? And there's kind of a nuance there between master development plan and an operating plan. Do you want to try to yeah. do there, Kim? So let me start with the master plan. Um, so the special use permit does require that the holder prepares a master plan. We see master plans being aged anywhere from you know a few years to as much as 20 years if they haven't been updated for a while. There's no specific timeline. Um, if you've got new projects, new ideas, they probably are going to need to go to a master plan in order to be articulated to your, your district ranger and forest supervisor. So today we think of master plans as being typically good for about seven to 10 years or so. Um, master plan is super flexible. It can have whatever the ski area wants to have in there. Now we also see that, and in, Johnny in, uh, brought up Sarwia. In Sarwia, there's language that if you want to do summer activities, it has to be articulated in a master plan. That's a hard requirement. Interestingly enough, we don't have the same requirement for a new chairlift. Now, typically, the new chairlift is going to need to be in a master plan. But for summer activities, it's got to be in a new master plan that's, part, that's codified in the law. So your master plan is, you know, one thing I'd leave, leave the audience with. Master plans are accepted, not approved. So you get this nice new master plan done. Um, you turn it into the Forest Service. They review it. And they review it for forest plan consistency. They've gone back to that forest plan. And they've said, this is generally consistent with what the forest plan says and allows. We can accept this master plan. It goes on the shelf as being the accepted master plan. Now, what you choose to take into an approval process off of that is your choice. So you might have, so let's say we've got 20 different projects, 20 new projects in a master plan. The resort operator then can say, hey, we'd like to take projects two, four, seven, and nine into an approval process, hmm. we can we can take those pieces and say, okay, let's go do the NEPA on those projects, lift replacement or a new lift or new restaurant or whatever it might be. So that's kind of how that process works. So the master plan really is that infrastructure, items on the mountain, things that, things that need to be in there. Last piece I want to make, and we don't have enough time to go down this rabbit hole, is master plans do not set capacity limitations. In a master plan, we use what we call comfortable carrying capacity as a planning tool. It's how we balance the resort. It's how we figure out what the uphill capacity is. We design the lift line times. We design right down to how many urinals there are in the men's room and stalls in the women's room. Balance it with parking, balance it with wastewater treatment. That's the comfortable capacity. It's a planning tool. Today, particularly, there's a lot of pressure on these capacity issues. We see that the public and the forests in some place are saying, well, you're beyond your approved capacity. There's only a handful of resorts out there that have any type of capacity limitations. And those are absolutely separate agreements, separate documents that have been put in place mm -hmm. in the town or, or elsewhere that says, here's your max capacity. Um, we absolutely see that on a given day, peak days, a ski area can and should exceed their comfortable carrying capacity by as much as 20 or 25 percent. You know, it's back to that old adage, you don't build the church for Easter Sunday. You don't capitalize the ski area for the day before New Year's. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't afford to build the capital at that level. We understand that it's going to be less than a comfortable experience on those kind of peak days. So those are kind of the key takeaways for master plans. Um, back to your point on operating plans. The operating plans is kind of everything else. Um, the operating plans need to be really detailed, really specific. So these are your procedures. These are your lift evac procedure, your snow safety procedures, all those kind of things. It's also a cool opportunity for introducing new uses, new activities. As long as those new uses and activities don't like, you don't have to hurt the dirt. You typically can get those into an operating plan. Hey, we want to start running a chairlift and doing some weddings. That goes into an operating plan. And then it's also the place to clarify, codify 
how we're doing other things in your uh, cartoon brings up the whole uphill access piece. Mm-hmm. That's what it operating plans for. That's where a resort's going to sit down and articulate. Here's how we propose to manage our uphill access. We're going to let folks go up first thing in the morning, but not after the resort opens. No dogs allowed. Dogs are allowed. We're going to charge for it. We're not going to charge for it. And we see scaries across the nation doing all of those things to, and, and including even prohibiting uphill access if that's the choice. Well, that's like an annual update too. Like you have to resubmit in the fall, right? What are we going to do this winter? Annually updated. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And those don't really have to have much. I mean, the Forest Service definitely reviews those and approves those, but it's not a, a huge involved process. It doesn't need like an environmental review or any of that stuff. So if I wanted to run a scheduling event at Hoodoo, Jake Smith, can we talk maybe? Like that would be something operating plan, like a new kind of thing that would have to work out through that. Yeah. Um, one I'm familiar with over at Grand Targhee, after the resort closes each spring, they do a uh, uphill snowmobile event. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, yeah it's a hill climb. Yeah. That goes into your operating plan. Yeah. Or if you would like to prohibit ski jarring in your parking lot. Yeah. You might say that too. And I think that, yeah, I don't know if you're going to get into it, but that, that rules of use piece is huge where we talk about what is allowed. You know, what you can and can't do. What you can and can't do and who's deciding what. And I think... Uh, just to to make it more complicated than well, it is complicated. Um, you know, we have we have local law, you know, county law and ordinances, state laws sometimes that affect access. You know, you might be endangering other people by skinning up in an avalanche, in avalanche. Yeah, yeah totally. Like triggering avalanche. Winch cat cable, the whole zone. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you know, I think it's really it is kind of confusing, but you know, that is also where you really want to lay out your rules of use um, for what you know people can't sled perhaps on your ski runs or whatever because. You know, you have certain uh, parameters for how your business needs to operate and function. And so what what we look at in, in the permit is that you might be on federal land, but we, what we call it, it's not exclusive. You don't have exclusive right. But we do. The Forest Service does want to make sure that you have every right and opportunity to operate in a way that makes sense for you. And so um, basically we look at it from that lens, like some things that you might prohibit, uh, we would say, because it might be interfering with your business. Yeah. Well, so, and this year was a big one for that with uphill policy, with demand, with some things that went on last fall, with some other access things. And if, I mean, you look at the, the doom scrolling feeds of people just uneducated on, on what all that means. And it was brutal, in, you know, in some areas, but totally within the program. And it's been very thought out and it's, it's, it's a real thing. Guys, I really uh, appreciate this time. I think it's really valuable for a, a broader audience to hear this sort of stuff. We do have to move on with the day. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for being such a resource for us. Yeah, thank you. Well, that was a deep dive. Peeling back the layers of the onion how public lands came to be, how ski areas came to be on public lands, and then how to, and just scratching the surface of how to administer the ski area uh, on the public land. And even just a little bit of how these ski area administrators can put in place some rules about authorized activities in these recreational spaces. It's not just a free for all out there. Yes, it might be public land, but that doesn't mean you can have your horse pull you through the base area on any given day, as an example. Such a cool discussion that just hasn't come together like that before. And I'm really, really thankful to the crew who did that. Chris Hager from BHA, 
Shawnee Hinman from the U.S. Forest Service, and Kent Sharp from SE Group. I do want to give a big shout out here to Tommy Thompson and the National Museum of Forest Service History, which is where a lot of that source material came from that Shawnee presented. And if you hit those show notes, you were able to see some of that stuff that that Shawnee gleaned from there. Uh, So search that up, the National Museum of Forest Service History. You'll be able to see some cool stuff. Another big thanks to Shannon Kelly for helping me MC this event throughout the day. You heard her voice just for a second here in this episode. Now get out there, take care of your ski area, and let's all take care of these public spaces. It's not ours, it's just our turn. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so the next episode pops up on your feed. And we'll see you next time when we all learn more about how the mountain works. The one thing I want to leave with you before before I step down from the stage is the next time you go out on public lands, understand the history, remind yourself what's at stake, but then also bring a friend, not like your buddy that you always go skiing with, but somebody new. Introduce them to the outdoors. You guys are all public landowners. You guys all have a stake in this. Every single time you step out, go ski, you guys are stewards of these lands and a voice for these lands. I'm Goggy Fogle.